Please turn with me this evening as we pick up that study on spiritual warfare, turning tonight to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 31, reading until verse 47. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Our Lord is confronting sin and evil head-on in this passage. We'll understand better why uh, this evening. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord as it is read for you tonight. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May his Holy Spirit bless it to our hearts. I draw your attention to our text for tonight, which is verse 44. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let's ask God's guiding hand upon his word as it's brought forth here this evening. Heavenly Father, we do pray that indeed we may understand better the true character of our great enemy, Satan. Lord, we pray 
And we do this so that we would learn to look even more fully in faith to the only one who can defeat him, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Father, teach us these truths even here this evening. Work upon our hearts. Remove any and all distractions from us. Father, we pray, may we indeed be your children and prove ourselves such by hearing and accepting your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will remember that we began our series on spiritual warfare, as I mentioned about a month ago now, in order to get a better understanding, a better biblical grasp of this holy battle that we find ourselves in as followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We studied, you remember, how Scripture teaches us that this holy war is fierce, that it is spiritual, and that it is necessary for us as believers. You might remember as well that we stressed several times that we engage in this study not to elevate Satan, but to glorify our Savior. We desire to learn more about our arch enemy, the devil, only in order to better understand our own helplessness in this battle against him if we are left to ourselves, so that we will more quickly recognize our need to flee to Christ. In other words, you see, beloved, we want to see Jesus as our spiritual all in all, admit our own helplessness, when it comes to this spiritual warfare and trust even more fully in our Savior. And so, to continue our study then this evening, we strive to better understand our enemy. Our Lord in our text for tonight tells us that the devil is a murderer and a liar. And that is true. But it's also important for us to understand, beloved, that the devil did not start out being the devil. In other words, God did not create a being to be murderous and malevolent in this way, a murderer and a liar. No, Satan was created as a perfect and pure being whom the Bible calls Lucifer. We know this from Ezekiel chapter 28. Please turn to that with me. Have your finger, keep your finger here at John chapter 8. But here in Ezekiel 28 we see how Satan began his existence. Ezekiel chapter 28, we begin reading at verse 12. We won't read this entire passage, but just the, until verse 15. Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an or, or anointed guardian cherub. I placed you 
You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now stop there, congregation. We could keep reading. But this brings us to the first point of the message tonight. That Satan is a fallen being. In this passage from Ezekiel, the Lord God is speaking through his prophet mainly about the king of Tyre, a neighboring nation of Old Testament Israel. And yet the words of this chapter alternate between God's thoughts about an earthly human king and a description then that is given to us, especially in the verses that I've read, of a created heavenly being who was put into a place of authority and power that was far beyond any earthly being. Now, theologians differ widely as to when the angels were created by God. Some say it was before the events recorded for us in the first two chapters of Genesis. Others insist that no, all things, including the angels, were created on one of those six days of creation week that's described for us in those two chapters. And yet the creation of angels is not specifically recorded on any of those days of creation week. So I believe either one of those views is allowable to be held. But what is sure is that soon after the six days of creation, there is already found on this earth, wandering around, this evil and sinister being called Satan who tempts Adam and Eve and plunges God's perfect creation into sin and rebellion. And the question comes, beloved, then, if God created everything, including all the angels, perfect and good, where, then, did Satan come from? How did he, who has created perfect and good, turn evil? Well, Scripture tells us, beloved, Notice that twice here in Ezekiel 28, Satan is referred to as a guardian cherub. Once in verse 14, another time in verse 16, which we did not read. But this term refers to the great authority and power that was given to Lucifer. That was Satan's name before he fell. Isaiah 14 tells us that Lucifer means day star. And while Satan means the accuser. This day star, Lucifer, was one of the highest and brightest of all of the created angels. One of only three angels that are given names in Scripture. Gabriel and Michael are the other two. And because of these, these three are referred to as archangels. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Lucifer had a special place of prominence in his service to God. For example, verse 12 tells us you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Verse 14, you were on the holy mountain of God. Verse 15, you were blameless in your day, in your ways from the day that you were created. So, beloved, here we see a creature made by God that must have been captivating to behold. One who invoked awe and fascination, even in the eyes of the other angels. 
In comparison to those other angels, this day star, Lucifer, was set far above and unique. Reverend Donald Barnhouse, a Presbyterian theologian from a generation ago, wrote this about Lucifer's pre-fall state. I'm quoting here, Satan awoke in the first moment of his existence in the full-orbed beauty and power of his exalted position, surrounded by all the magnificence which God himself had given him. Satan saw himself as above all the heavenly hosts in power, wisdom, and beauty. Only at the throne of God itself did he see more than what he himself possessed. End of quote. That last line is the key that we need to understand. Only at the throne of God itself did he, Lucifer, the day star, see more than what he himself possessed. And beloved, understand, it was exactly there, at the throne of God, that the first sinful thought took hold in Lucifer's mind and heart. He had been given much, almost everything, but he did not have what God had. And the first thought of envy and rebellion took root. He coveted God's place and power for himself. Beloved, do you remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at the Catechism's description of the Ten Commandments? How I mentioned that it was really that tenth commandment, which we so often just treat as not really, it's one of the lesser commandments, coveting. Remember how I said that it was coveting that really is the basis for the breaking of every other one of the commands of God? Because that's where sin begins. Deep in the heart, coveting something that you don't have. And that's exactly what happened to Lucifer in becoming Satan. Look at verse 17 of Ezekiel 28. Verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I want to also read for you Isaiah 14, parts from that. You don't have to turn to that. You can write it down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Because this also tells us of the day star's rebellion. It's very instructive. Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol. To the far reaches of the pit. 
Pride became this glorious archangel's undoing. Lucifer became preoccupied with his own self-importance. Love of self caused him to throw off his created place, and he tries to occupy the place of God. Lucifer wanted ultimate power. His high and lofty position was not enough for him. He wanted the highest place of most importance. And so he tries to orchestrate a palace coup in heaven. Revelation 12, verse 4, you remember that's the passage we looked at when we began this series a month ago, tells us that he recruited a large number of angels to join in this rebellion. A third of the stars of heaven were swept up by the dragon's tail, remember, we're told there. But they were all defeated, cast out of heaven, and removed from their lofty positions. This is how Lucifer, the day star, becomes Satan, the accuser. A fallen being whose end is eternal destruction. And beloved, there is a lesson for every one of us here. For just as feelings of envy and pride and self-importance triggered the very first sin within the heart of, of Lucifer, so such feelings will also prove the end of our own soul if we harbor such thoughts within us. If we hold on to grudges, if we cannot let go of a hurt which someone has done to us, we are giving the devil his favorite foothold, and he will destroy us unless we flee to Jesus Christ. We must move on here. The second thing that we ought to know in order to understand our enemy aright is that Satan is also a limited being. Limited. Beloved, let me state this clearly. Satan is not God. We often tend to think of him in that way, that, that Satan's like this bad big guy and God is the good big guy and they're at each other's throats. It's actually an old, old oriental uh, misreligion called Manichaeism. It's a heresy. But as a created being, Satan is not omniscient as God is. He does not know what you are thinking as God does. Satan is not omnipresent as God is. He can't be all over the world at once as God is. Satan is not omnipotent as God is. He's, he's nothing compared to God. Now he's way more powerful than us, which is why we need to make sure we understand him aright. But he is not as powerful as God. Not even close. So do not give Satan too much credit. And I stress this, beloved, because we must be aware of the devil and how evil he is, but we should never view him as a sinful equivalent of God. He's not. And most importantly, beloved, realize that Satan can only and ever do what God allows him to do. We must never forget this truth. Satan cannot act beyond the limits placed upon him by God in his sovereign decrees and power as the creator. 
Our Heidelberg Catechism has a beautiful confession in question and answer 28 dealing with God's providence. In answer 28, we confess that apart from God's permissive will, nothing, not even Satan, can so much as move. In other words, Satan cannot even lift a finger unless God lets him. Isn't that comforting, beloved? It should be. Now, it's true that God's permissive will does seem to allow that old serpent a wide range. Indeed, bruising the heel of the woman's seed, just as God foretold he would in Genesis 3, verse 15. But you see, in Old Testament times, It was exactly Satan's goal to wipe out the seed of the woman so that the promised Messiah, who would crush his head, would never be born. Beloved, we need to understand that that first promise given by God of the gospel to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 verse 15, that promise, remember, was spoken to Satan himself as part of the curse that God laid upon this world. And Satan understood the full impact of that divine promise more than even Adam and Eve did. For it meant his his eternal destruction. So the devil knew that if he could just erase the line of the covenant that that seed of the woman through whom the Messiah would one day come, then his rebellion would succeed and God's plan of redemption would fail. And so Satan pours his immense power into that task. This is why we read of such epic battles in Old Testament times. Egypt enslaving the children of Israel for 400 years. Pharaoh ordering the killing of all of Israel's newborn males. The Philistines never-ending ongoing battles with the Israelites. And even in the post-exilic period, in Esther's time, Uh, with Haman's plot to wipe out all the Jews on earth. And beloved, it was not just foreign nations who Satan employed in this destructive plan, but the devil also encouraged rebellion within and among the covenant people themselves. Remember how in the conquest of Canaan, he incited Achan to covet and to take the things of Jericho, which had been solely devoted to God alone, bringing destruction and condemnation upon the whole nation. In the time of the judges, every man did what was right in their own eyes. It was anarchy. He incited David to take a census of the people and so bring judgment upon all of Israel. Under the later kings, the covenant people followed witchcraft and the occult. And yet in spite of all of these failings on the behalf of God's covenant people, no matter how well planned Satan's evil campaigns were, they were ultimately thwarted by God's greater plan. And so it is still today. And not only were the devil's ways thwarted, but because our Savior, our sovereign God, always has a greater plan for His people, the Lord used Satan's evil to bring about God's greater good. 
John Calvin in his institute states that Satan is so ruled by God's bidding, and, he, and I quote here, as to be compelled to render God his service. End of quote. In other words, Satan, even in spite of all his evil plans, is simply working out the plan of God. And beloved, what a comfort it is then for us in our own life to know that our enemy's greatest evil is fully under the control of our best friend and heavenly Father. This is why the Apostle Paul could write Romans 8, verse 28, that verse that that so comforts us and yet at times confuses us. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. It doesn't always feel good to us, but God's greater good is being followed. That leads us then to the third point of the message tonight. That Satan is also a defeated being. Our Lord in our scripture passage for this evening clearly sets forth this truth. In this passage, our Lord confesses that there are really only two sides in this spiritual conflict. His own and Satan's. And that there is only one winner in this holy war. You're either on the side of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, or you are on the side of the one who is a cheat and a murderer and a liar. Can you hear how totally opposite these two sides are? And this has been the story, the antithesis, ever since the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Realize as well, congregation, that when in our text our Lord confronts the Jews with this very truth, The ultimate battle in this holy war was soon coming. With the incarnation of God's eternal word, this long-simmering feud between the devil and the seed of the woman comes to its ultimate conclusion. This is exactly why Satan and his minions unleash their greatest fury against God's Christ. At his birth, you remember, King Herod was enlisted by Satan to wipe out all the male children of Bethlehem two years old and younger. For 40 days in the wilderness, Satan comes again and again to tempt Jesus with immediate glory instead of going the way of the cross. I'll give you the full possession of the whole world if you will just bow down and worship me. From the religious leaders comes scorn and mockery throughout the entire three-year ministry of our Lord. From the Jewish people comes ultimate rejection and even hatred. In the Garden of Eden, Satan begins to unfold his last final push in this ultimate battle. All the powers of hell are unleashed upon our Lord in this last ultimate bid to break God's plan of salvation. Speaking of that very hour, Psalm 69 verse 20 prophesies this, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. And this emotional bruising of our Lord's heart in Gethsemane was magnified 
when one of his own disciples comes and betrays him. And every one of his closest friends abandons him. During our Lord's trial before sinful men, physical bruising takes place. A crown of thorns mashed into his scalp. He was scourged, beaten, spit upon. But understand, congregation, that it was at Golgotha where the worst bruising of all occurs. For far worse than the scorn of the Roman soldiers, worse than the insults of the religious leaders, worse than the rejection of the Jewish people, worse than all this physical and emotional bruising, was the spiritual bruising received by our Lord at the hands of His own Heavenly Father. The complete and abject spiritual abandonment of Christ by God, as we studied this morning. Just as Isaiah 53 had prophesied and had been planned within the council of the intertrinitarian Godhead before time ever began, our divine mediator hung there on the cross alone enduring the naked flame of God's white-hot wrath against our sin, forsaken by heaven, rejected by man, hated by hell. After three hours of this eternal agony, Christ's unfathomable cry comes from his lips, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther wrote late in his life that he once spent an entire morning deep in prayer and contemplation, striving to comprehend Christ's agony that was endured upon the cross, only to arise from his knees and to confess God forsaken of God, who can understand it? Truly, beloved, what our Lord had to endure at God's hand by the hosts of hell is incomprehensible to us. But this much we do know. Upon that cross of Calvary, Satan was defeated once and for all by Christ. Hebrews 2 verse 14 assures us that through death, Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And beloved, that is the exact reason then why we celebrate this time of the year. Is it not? The complete, utter, and eternal defeat of Satan by our Lord upon the cross. Through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, our Savior single-handedly broke the power of our oppressor. Satan lost his suffocating grip over the nations. Christ's covenant of redemption is assured, and God's elect are redeemed. 
Yes, Satan is still present on this earth. He has not yet been sent forever into the lake of fire. Oh, but he is roundly, soundly defeated. Jesus is the victor. And as his people, we serve a living Savior. Go out into that world in that confidence, congregation, and serve that Savior this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for instructing us even further, both on on our enemy, yes, this day star turns Satan, the accuser, Oh, but we thank you even more for reminding us of how he has been defeated utterly and completely because of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we do pray, impress that truth upon our heart that even as, as it is becoming more and more clear out there in the world in which we're called upon to live, those two sides, the seed of the woman doing battle with the seed of the serpent. Father, may we go out and enter into that battle understanding fully that that ultimate seed of the woman has crushed Satan's head at the cross and that we are redeemed. May that truth never leave us. May it be visible and evident through us. May the world come to see our Savior in us. In Jesus' name alone we pray. Amen. We have the opportunity.